Amen. Well, if you have your Bible this morning, why don't you go ahead and turn over to Hebrews chapter 11. Hebrews chapter 11. We're going we're gonna to reconvene, if you will, in this study that's taken us most of this year after a one-week break from it due to an unexpected delivery of a baby. I say unexpected. I mean, last week was our due date. But how many babies actually come on their due date? Uh, I want to start by saying thank you to Drew and Bill and to Dave for scrambling like crazy at last minute to make it happen, pull it off, um, and to David Atchison, who's not here this morning but was, was on call, so to speak, for us last week. He got the call about 7 or 7.30 in the morning to come and preach at 10 o'clock, uh, and he was, he was up for it, as were all the other guys. And, uh, and so I want to say thank you to them, and thank you to all of you for praying for Lindsay and me. Uh, for this last week, it's been a sweet time for our family. Uh, God gave us a healthy little boy who is uh, a ton of work, but he's really worth it. He's precious. Uh, and we're we're just so grateful for the last week. And we know that a lot of it has come because you guys have prayed for us and God has answered your prayers. So thank you for that. Uh, I also I, I go there in part as a disclaimer for what you're about to hear. Uh, because this sermon wasn't even very good last week when I was supposed to give it, but it was prepared over a week ago and has been sitting on my desk for a week. Uh, and, and now I'm about to deliver it a week later with barely any sleep. Uh, so, you know, if, if any sort of heresy happens to come spewing out of my mouth, I hope you'll call me on it. And I just hope you won't hold it against me if I'm a little bit less than coherent this morning. Uh, I'm going to pray that God will transcend my abilities as I pray each week and encourage you by this beautiful beautiful passage that we're going to look at this morning. Hebrews chapter 11 is one of my favorite sections of the book. It's one of the most famous sections of the book. It's what's called the Hall of Faith, where he gives you all these famous heroes from the Old Testament who are examples of what it looks like to believe in Jesus well. He, wants, he gives us this as sort of a way to, to, to connect with what he's calling us to. It's like, see those guys and who they, who they were, what they believed, what they did based on their faith? They'll go be that. That's the idea for chapter 11. It comes on the heels of what we called the, one of the worst warnings, the harshest, most severe warnings in all of the New Testament. The end of chapter 10 in Hebrews warned against, warned against those who have tasted of the goodness of God's promises and fallen away, that for those who make a statement about God, who essentially say God is not worth what he, he isn't who he claims to be, he's not trustworthy. Those who make that statement about him, there's, there's no hope for them. He calls us to be those who persevere, not those who shrink back. And then in chapter 11, he shows us what perseverance looks like. So if the end of chapter 10 was a warning and a call to hold on and not shrink back, chapter 11 is supposed to reinforce that warning to say, this is what it would look like for you to hold on in spite of the struggles that this life is going to hold for you. That's where we come in Hebrews 11. Faith, in other words, the Hall of, Hall of Faith chapter is introducing us to this, this notion of faith and what it would look like in, in practice. Faith is basically how we stake ourselves to what Jesus has done. I'm going to set you up for chapter 11, but coming at it from a slightly different angle now. So most of the first 10 chapters has been about Jesus. It's just trying to build him up to show how what he's done isn't matched by anything anyone else can offer. There's no point in looking around for other options. Like what you need is provided by Jesus and only by Jesus. But, you know, that's only good news for us 
if there's some way for us to, to, to buy into that, right? It's only good news when your ship is sinking and you hear that there exists a lifeboat if there's some option for you getting on that lifeboat. If you just hear that some random people you don't know have gotten on the lifeboat, well, I mean, that's nice enough. I guess that's sort of good news, but if you're going down, you're going down, right? How good is that news, really? It's only good news if we know how to buy in. And faith is what it looks like for us to embrace and enjoy a healed relationship with God. If, if all the stuff we've said about Jesus is what it looks like for God to bridge the gap that our sin caused between us, then faith is what it looks like for us to take hold of what he's done. It's what it looks like in us. So our author, to draw that picture for us, gives us one of Scripture's most beautiful and well-rounded exhibitions, if you will, on the nature of faith, what it looks like. It's going to take us probably a month, maybe, maybe actually more like six weeks, to get through this whole chapter. I really want us to savor it because it's beautiful. And this morning what I want to do is savor the very first part of it. I've got it down that we're covering the first seven verses, but just as a disclaimer at the beginning, we're really going to focus most on that first verse and draw from some of the other seven because the others really do some of the same things that the rest of this chapter is going to do. We're going to be covering lots of examples of faith in weeks to come. So today what I really want to do is drill down on this definition of faith that he gives us in the first verse. This thing that he's calling us to, this thing that he says is the reason the ancients were commended and pleasing to God, this thing that's the key to us holding on in the midst of life's hardships, that's what we want to get a hold on this morning. That comes in verse 1. If you found Hebrews chapter 11, will you please stand with me? I'm going to read verses 1 to 7. And then we're really going to camp out on verse 1. This is the word of the Lord from Hebrews chapter 11. Now, faith is the assurance of things hoped for, the conviction of things not seen. For by it, the people of old received their commendation. By faith, we understand that the universe was created by the word of God, so that what is seen was not made out of things that are visible. By faith... Abel offered to God a more acceptable sacrifice than Cain, through which he was commended as righteous, God commending him by accepting his gifts. And through his faith, though he died, he still speaks. By faith, Enoch was taken up so that he should not see death, and he was not found because God had taken him. Now before he was taken, he was commended as having pleased God. And without faith... It's impossible to please him, for whoever would draw near to God must believe that he exists and that he rewards those who seek him. By faith, Noah, being warned by God concerning events as yet unseen, in reverent fear constructed an ark for the saving of his household. By this, he condemned the world and became an heir of the righteousness that comes by faith. This is the word of the Lord. You can be seated. I mentioned already, I really want us to spend most of our time this morning on this first point because it sets up the rest of the chapter so well and because this simple, almost subtle sentence is so deep, so perceptive that I don't want to take any chance that we might miss the full meaning of it. Here is the simple sentence that I want us to come away from this point grasping and holding on to. 
It's not meant to be a full, full-orbed definition of what faith is in the perspective of the Bible. It's, it's a sort of definition, a definition of, the, of a piece of faith, a, a sort of this is what faith is like that sets up the rest of the chapter, and it's this. This is how we'll define it. Faith is claiming the reality of what you can't see because you see everything else by it. Faith is claiming the reality of what you can't see. Synonym for what you can't see, I think, is the word of God or the promises of God. Faith is claiming the reality of the word of God or his promises to us because you see everything else by that word, those promises. Now, getting there is the real trick because this little verse, verse 1, is actually a little more complicated than it looks like on the surface. You can see quickly, just by glancing at it, that there's two pieces to it. That there's, a, there's, there's one piece, comma, followed by another piece. And there's, there's, a, there's two layers of meaning in each of those pieces. We're going to break them down one by one. That sentence I just gave you, I think, is a summary of those two pieces. I think the, the point of the first part of this verse is that faith is claiming the reality of what you can't see. And at the point of the second part of the verse is that you, you, by claiming the reality of what you can't see, you see everything else more clearly. You understand everything else by what you're claiming. But the trick is that our, my translation, I don't know which ones you guys are using, but my translation has made a decision in this verse that, that I don't think is the best one. And it, it, it's not me thinking that, right? I'm, obviously, I'm not a translator, so what do I know? But I've read a lot of other people who say, yeah, that wasn't the move to make in this translation. There's, there's actually a better way to go. In each of these two parts, I'm going to be suggesting that the key word at the heart of them should be translated a little different than what I've got, and that that's the key to understanding that verse. So just a little, uh, little warning, a little shot across the bow. First, we're going to be doing some more technical work this morning that I think is going to pay off for us. There's two parts, as I've said, to this, this explanation of what faith is like in verse 1. The first one comes in the first half of verse 1. Now, now here's how my translation puts it. Faith is the assurance of things hoped for. Now, the key word here is assurance. There's a word behind that that's very controversial in this verse. You can see that here they've gone with assurance. Some of yours may say conviction. Uh, sometimes they say confidence. Does that sound about right? It, just as a, out of curiosity, raise your hand if your translation says something like that. Assurance, confidence, conviction. Okay, that's probably two-thirds of you. The other option, so, so that, that option translates this word as something about you, inside of you, like how you feel, how you think. It's what you might call a subjective word. It's about you, right? As opposed to something true outside of you, something that you would call objective. So the other way to translate this word is something like substance or essence, a thing, not a feeling. How many of you have one of those sorts of words? All right, that's significantly less of you. It's actually the way the old King James translation gets it, uh, and they're right this time, I think. There's a word behind that first phrase that isn't ever used or barely ever used. It's barely ever used to describe something you feel inside of yourself. Almost every time it's used is to describe something outside of you, some object, something that's of substance or essence, maybe, maybe to help you connect with the difference between it. So, so I'm preaching a sermon right now, and it has a kind of existence on this 
these sheets of paper, right? It's outside of me. It exists as a, a body of words that's objective, right? Has substance and essence. And then there's, there's the way I feel about this sermon. You know, the fact that I'm shaking my boots, that it's about to bomb right now, right? That you guys are not going to get anything out of it. That's a, subjective, that's a subjective thing, right? How I feel is different from the thing itself. Well, here's the key. Here's what I say, why I'm going into all this detail. Here in this first part of the verse and in the second part of the verse, the key words each time, my translation goes with them as if they're describing something in us, where the words almost every other time they're used anywhere else describe something outside of us. Now, now let me bring it home. Let me tell you why this matters. So with the first part of the verse, instead of the assurance of things hoped for, if it were to read the substance of things hoped for, what would that mean? How could faith actually be the thing that you hope for? How could, it, how could it be the essence of it? You can see why the translators wanted to find another word, because that doesn't immediately make sense. Here's, though, I think, it's, I think our author is getting at. It means that we don't define faith as a certain feeling towards what you hope for, towards the promises of God. We define faith as the substance of those things. I think it goes to the heart of what Hebrews has been calling for all along. What Hebrews wants us to do is to claim now, in this life, right now, to claim the reality of the promises of God, of what he has called for us a permanent and abiding possession. He wants us to have that possession now, even though we don't see it in our experience. He wants us to live from it as if it's true even though we're still waiting on a full realization of it. Faith, in other words, is taking those promises and living as if they were already ours. It's to make them substantive. It gives them substance and reality now, even though we're still sort of waiting. Here's the way one guy put it, one one of the New Testament scholars I read. I love this phrase. He said, faith gives to the objects of hope the force of present realities. You get that? Faith gives to the objects of hope, the things that we wait for, the promises God has made to us, the things that we don't yet see. Faith gives those things present reality. I thought long and hard about an analogy for this because I think this is a little bit abstract. I never landed on one that works, that's like a home run, but here's what I came up with. Uh, You'll see where my mind has been the last two or three weeks. So Lindsay and I have been expecting a baby for a long time. And this this analogy was going to work a lot better last week before we had the baby because I was going to say, you know, we still haven't seen this baby, right? For a long time, for nine months almost, we were expecting something that we hadn't seen. In a similar way to the way we now anticipate God making good on all his promises to us. But we didn't just wait. We didn't just sit around apathetically hoping that the baby showed up. We actually changed our lives because of this hope. We actually, you know, stockpiled on infant diapers. We got a bigger car. We changed the configuration of Walter's room so that another bed could fit in there. We began doing things like taking lots of dates leading up to the end of it because we knew that that was not going to be part of our life for the next several months. We, We started living as if that reality was already here. We claimed the unseen object as a reality, and it changed our life. 
That's what this author wants us to do with the promises that God is going to redeem us fully once and for all if we hold on. He wants us now in the middle of all of these conflicting views that come at us and tug at our hearts and try to get us away from Jesus. He wants us holding on to him as if he was already in our sight to hold on to the things that are unseen, to give them substance and reality. That's what faith does. It puts them in our life as realities even though we can't see them. It is the substance of things that are hoped for. One of the examples that is in our passage this morning is um, in verse 7 of chapter 11 is Noah. I think he is a classic example of this kind of faith. Verse 7 says, Noah built this ark being warned by God concerning events as yet unseen. If you know the story, you know how ridiculous Noah must have looked, right? Building this huge boat when there hadn't been any kind of rain, there was no water anywhere around that he could sail it in. He must have looked crazy. And he was, and, and the, according to the story, it took like a hundred years to build. I mean, it's just mind-blowing. There's a mystery in that, too, that whole chronology of it. I don't, I don't get what's going on there, but the bottom line is that he built something, he shaped his life around something that God had told him that he couldn't see for a long time, and in spite of the fact that it cost him socially, you have to figure it cost him big time socially because he chose to take those promises and to give them substance in his life, even though he couldn't see them. Noah is a classic example of what this would look like. Faith is claiming the reality of things that you can't see. Faith says that if God isn't who he claims to be, there's no point, no hope for getting out of bed every morning. But if God is who he claims to be, or because he is who he claims to be, then this crisis, fill in the blank, this sickness, this rejection, this job loss is no more threatening to me than getting out of bed in the morning get that? Faith says that if God isn't who he claims to be, there's no point in getting out of bed in the morning. But because God is who he claims to be, and because his promises are true, then there is nothing we can experience in this life that is any more threatening to us and our eternal security than getting out of bed in the morning. That's what faith says. That's to live as if the promises are true. That is to give those promises a substance in our life. Now, the second part of the verse, I think, rounds this out for us a little bit. Because if I were you, what I would be thinking right now is that that sounds great, but what if it all is a lie, right? It, couldn't, couldn't I basically, am I not basically calling you to just live as if it's true, whether it is or not? Just claim it, you know? Put it at the heart of your life and then see what happens later. Couldn't you also say that with, when, when Y2K was coming around, there were people who claimed the reality of that event and changed their life in exactly the way I'm talking about? They stockpiled bottled water. They dug out shelters in their backyard. You know, they, they, they got weapons that they thought they were going to... Y2K, how many people remember Y2K? Maybe this is too young of a crowd. Okay. Y2K, right? It was a famously non-event that people planned for. They claimed that event and the reality of the unseen by faith, and they changed their life, shaped it around it. And, and then it was a hoax, basically. It just didn't happen. And how, how do we know that that's not going to happen here with, with the promises of the gospel? You, you say to claim them and build your life on them, but what if they're a lie? I am saying that faith means claiming the promises as true when you can't see them. But I'm not only saying that, and neither is this verse. The next half of the verse rounds out the picture of what faith is. Again, like I said earlier, 
my translation, goes with another subjective word, a word about us, about our feeling towards God's promises. Faith, it says, is the conviction of things not seen, as if like, I'm really just convinced that they're true, which is a statement about me, not about those things, right? But the word that's used here, that they go with conviction on, is not used that way. That's just not what that word means. It means more something like proof or demonstration. That's the way it's always used. It is the proof of something. And you can see here why the translators look for another word, because that doesn't immediately make sense. Like why would, how is it that faith proves something? Normally what we think about is faith as being based on proof, that we get evidence for the truth of God's claims and the existence of God and all that, and then on the basis of, this, of these reasons, therefore we believe. So faith is the result. But he's saying that faith is the proof or the demonstration of things that aren't seen. How does faith prove something? I think what our author is getting at is one of the most important things to understand about Christian faith. That Christian faith is not a call to wishful thinking, but to better thinking. Did you get that? Christian faith is not a call to wishful thinking, but to better thinking. It's not a call to check your brain at the door, but to use your brain more responsibly. When our author says that faith or the claiming of unseen things is the proof or the demonstration of unseen things, I think what he's basically getting at is what all scholars in any field do to demonstrate something. What you do is you collect all your information and you apply something called a hypothesis to that information. Right? You come up with what you think is a possible explanation and then you test your explanation against what you found and you see does it does it account for it and if it doesn't do very well then you trade in that hypothesis for another hypothesis and you see how it handles all the information that you've got so you think of a hypothesis as almost a kind of glasses that you use to look at your information and the best the one with the most explanatory power that does the best job of explaining all of this information is the one that you settle on, right? That's how you test a hypothesis. That's how all knowledge grows. I think what it means for faith to be the proof or the demonstration of things that aren't seen is that faith is, is like a hypothesis that you put on, like a pair of glasses, and you look at the world, at the things that you do see, and if faith explains them well, if claiming the reality of God's promises accounts for the things that you see in this world, then faith is, 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 in a sense, proving the reality of those unseen things. So here it might be easier to think of the unseen things as more than just a promise that God will save us, but the other claims of God's word, that God is the creator of everything that is, that God has put into the world that he's made a sense of justice, a longing for right over against wrong, but a longing that a lot of times we, even in our own selves, are torn over, that we, that we even fail our own standards. The Bible tells us a story about how things got here, about what went wrong, and about what God is doing now to remake everything that's been broken, that, that is compelling when put on and applied to the things that we see in our lives. The claim of the Bible is not that you stop thinking when you claim faith. Faith is not over against reason. Faith is just putting on this set of glasses that you use to look at the world and to see what happens when you do. I think that's why verse 3 is used here as an example. It's one of these examples of faith. The first one out of the gate is not actually a person. 
Like the rest of the rest of the examples that the chapter has for us are like this person had faith, this person had faith, this person had faith. He starts with creation. He says, by faith, we understand that the universe was created by the word of God, so that what is seen was not made out of things that are visible. I think what he's getting at is trying to illustrate this this point about faith, that it's not stopping to think. It's saying God's word says that God made everything that is, that he didn't use anything that was already there, that that, that the material world is not eternal. God is only, only is eternal, and from his own self he created everything from his own power and resources. That's what God's word claims. That's an unseen claim. You can't test that one under a microscope or in a test tube. So how would you prove it? Well, you would take it by faith. You would claim that unseen thing, and then you would apply that to the world that you do see, and you would say, does it make more sense that an intelligent, loving, all-powerful God created the things that we see around us, created us, gave us these urges? Than any other explanation, than that these things just happened out of nowhere, than that we're simply being driven by blind forces. Do those blind can those blind forces explain the reality of love, a reality that we have all experienced and would be crazy to deny? Can those blind forces explain the fact that when we read about the Holocaust, we condemn it in our own hearts, like inevitably and from a reflex, we know it was wrong. Can blind forces explain why we condemn something like Darfur, the oppression of the weak? If blind forces are the only things that account for where we are today, then the kinds of things we see in the Holocaust or Darfur or any other genocide or whatever else is just it's profoundly natural. That's what it looks like for the world to change. But that just doesn't sit with anybody. So what we're seeing here, I think what verse 3 points us to, is that faith offers more explanatory power. It does a better job of explaining the things we see. Our faith claiming the things God has told us is true does a better job of explaining what we see than other options. This is not a call to stop thinking. It's a call to take up the claims that God has made, to put them on, to internalize them, and then see what you get. Faith is the substance of things that are hoped for. It is the proof of things that are not seen. Faith is claiming the reality of things that we can't see because we see everything else by those things. Now, what I want to I want to round out this point with one of my favorite sections from C.S. Lewis' book, *Mere Christianity*. If, 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 you're, if you're really hung up on faith still, and you feel like the reason you're hung up on it is that it does seem so uh, blind compared to other ways of figuring things out, other ways of knowing, this sermon is definitely not the place to take that up for you. I would love to do that over coffee. I would love to put a book into your hands to buy you a copy of a book that's really helped me by Tim Keller called The Reason for God. Uh, it addresses exactly those kinds of questions, and it will be our pleasure to go through that book with you. What I want to do to to wrap up this point, though, is point you to another source of doubt. I think, if anything, this first point has been trying to get you to think about faith differently. Don't don't pit your faith over against what you do in your science labs. It's, It's a different kind of thing. Faith is not about checking your brain at the door. It's about thinking in a different way, about taking up things that you can't see as a way of explaining the things that you can see. 
So the threat, I, what I, I want to say with Lewis is that the biggest threat to your faith is probably not that you find some new reason that it can't all be true, all the things God has told you. That's not going to be your biggest threat to your faith. The, the biggest threat to your faith is, is what you're going to feel, what you're going to imagine, how you're going to react when your life circumstances shift. Lewis has some great analogies for this. He, uh, he describes faith as holding on when what you see is the problem, like when what you see shifts, when your life circumstances shift, and the things that you had believed based on good, clear thinking are now thrown up in the air and into question because of new things that you see. He, he, he describes as an example that the, a time when he went in for a surgery and his reason had convinced him that he needed the surgery, that he, his body wouldn't be as healthy without it as with it that it wasn't going to cause him any kind of long-term damage, that he wouldn't feel anything, that they were going to give him enough uh, anesthesia or whatever to put him out. And then when he's laying out on the table and he sees the masks coming for his face and he sees the knives that are about to be applied to him, he, he begins to doubt. His reason convinced him it was worth it, but now he's, now he's wondering through his mind, through his mind is going, are they going to give me enough? Am I really going to feel it? What if I wake up in the middle of the surgery and they're cutting me? What am I going to do? What he, saw, what, he, what he thought based on his reason had not changed. It was still a good idea. It was still safe. It was still the thing to do. But something had changed in him. With the change of his circumstances, his emotions and his imagination ran wild with him. And here's the way Lewis puts it. Lewis says this, I'm not asking anyone to accept Christianity if his best reasoning tells him that the weight of evidence is against it. That's basically Lewis saying the same thing I've been trying to say. Faith is not asking you not to think. It's asking you to think in a certain way. That's not the point at which faith comes in, Lewis says. But supposing a man's reason once decides that the weight of evidence is for it, for faith, I can tell that man what's going to happen to him in the next few weeks. There will come a moment when there's bad news, or he's in trouble, or he's living among a lot of other people who do not believe it. And all at once, his emotions will rise up and carry out a sort of blitz on his belief. Or else there'll come a moment when he wants a woman, or wants to tell a lie, or feels very pleased with himself, or sees a chance of making a little money in some way that's not perfectly fair. Some moment, in fact, at which it would be very convenient if Christianity were not true. And once again, his wishes will carry and desires will carry out a blitz. I'm not talking of moments at which any real new reasons against Christianity turn up. Those have to be faced, and that's a different matter. That's what I've been saying. We want to handle those things. That's a different matter. Here's what you want to watch out for. I'm talking about moments where a mere mood rises up against it. Now, faith in the sense in which I'm here using the word is the art. This is what I really want you to hear. Hear this. Faith is the art of holding on to things your reason has once accepted in spite of your changing moods. Faith is the art of holding on to things, of claiming unseen things that your reason has accepted in spite of your changing moods. That's the kind of faith, that is precisely the kind of faith that this author is trying to to work up among those that he's writing to. Because he knows that what they're up against is not some new philosophy that's come in challenging the things that they had once believed. What they're up against is the loss of their property, the threat of prison, the, the threat of death for themselves and their friends, what has changed for them is their circumstances, and that has created in them a series of moods that are now calling to question the things they had once come to believe. And he wants them to hold on in that context, and that's what this definition of faith is aiming at. It is claiming the reality, making them substantive, making these promises of God substantive now, 
because you see everything else better by them. Now, the rest of our time in Hebrews chapter 11 is going to be focusing on illustrations of faith. Originally, in the plan for the sermon, I was going to spend some time on the next couple of illustrations of faith, but realizing that, this, that, that they actually don't add anything to what's coming later, what, I wanted, what I've decided to do is shift that focus onto next week and the weeks to come. Because the, the, the force of this chapter is less in each example giving you a new twist on what faith looks like than the sort of blow after blow of all these guys that you've come to respect that they had what I'm calling for here. That all of these heroes that you have had faith and, and therefore you should have faith too. And that's something we can sort of consolidate for later. What I want to do in the closing couple minutes is look at verse 6, which shows us why faith is commended. So what we have in these, in these verses is faith defined. That's where we wanted to spend most of our time today. Faith illustrated with some examples. That's what we're going to do next week and in the weeks to come. Verse 6, though, helps set us up for the weeks to come because it gives us a nice, clear, and concise explanation of why faith pleases God so much. Verse 6 says, Without faith it's impossible to please him, and then tells us why that's true. Whoever would draw near to God must believe that God exists and that he rewards those who seek him. Faith pleases God because faith is the belief that God exists, that he's good for his promises, that he rewards those who seek him. Faith is accepting God's definition of himself. It's to claim now as a substantive thing at the heart of your life that God is who his word says that he is and to live from that place. And that is remarkably fully pleasing to God. If you remember from our sermon on the warnings, that what made them so what made leaving God so bad, abandoning Jesus so bad, is that it made a statement to the world about him. What it said was, you know, I've been there and done that, and he didn't deliver for me. I've tasted of what he has to offer, and it wasn't good. That's what abandonment of God says about him. Faith makes the opposite statement about him. What it says is that God is. He exists. He is who he says he is. And God is eminently rewarding. He is more satisfying. He offers more full pleasures than I can get anywhere else. So I am with him. I am claiming the truth of his promises. It makes a statement about him that is supremely glorifying to him. And that's why this kind of faith pleases God. That's why this is what it looks like for our relationship with him to be healed from our side. One way to look at this broken relationship that Hebrews has been about, it's been all about fixing a broken relationship between God and us. One way to look at what caused the break in the relationship is our making a, a bad statement about who God is, by choosing our own ways over his, saying that he's not trustworthy by doing that. What it looks like for that relationship to get healed is faith for us to claim now, even though we can't see it, that God is who he says that he is, that he's worth trusting. best analogy I could come up with for this is my marriage. There's a sense in which I claim on faith, or I, I take, I claim as a reality and make substantive the notion that Lindsay, my wife, is 
God's perfect spouse for me, that in his providence, he gave her to me as the one that I needed, and that she will continue to be that until one of us dies. Now, I can't see the end from the beginning, right? I don't know that she's going to continue to be perfect for me. I can't see that. But the fact that I claim that on faith, that I, I institute that at the heart of our marriage, is very pleasing to her, right? It, it testifies to my affection for her. To, it's me making a statement about her being good for who I expect her to be, but who she's promised to be based on her vows to me, right? Now, can you imagine what would happen to our relationship if I didn't have that kind of faith in her, if I was not claiming and making substantive the reality in my life that Lindsay was going to continue as the perfect mate for me? Not that she's perfect, but that she's the perfect mate for me. If I didn't claim that, if I was constantly doubting her, her quality, if I was constantly looking around for other options that might be more rewarding, if I didn't believe that she is and that she rewards me as I seek her, then our relationship won't survive. And why, why should we expect our relationship with God to be any different? What a healed relationship with him is going to look like from our perspective is that we claim as a reality, make substantive in our lives, the fact that God is who he claims to be and that he rewards those who seek him in a way that no other God can. That's what we're called to. That's what's going to be shown to us in the weeks to come. Now let's pray that God would give that to us because he's got to if we're going to have it. Let's pray. Father, this kind of faith is radical. It just is so hard in this, this world where we're torn and pulled at by so many different sources. There's so many other things that, we, that our affections are drawn to. Our, our tastes are so numb to what's really good and truly satisfying that we will settle for cheap alternatives time and again. And so what we ask you for is a deeper affection for Jesus that drives out all those others, that we would so love him, that we would so taste of him and see his goodness, that our hearts would be fastened to him, fettered to him, that our rest in him would be complete, that we would live with peace because we trust that his promises are true. Oh, please give us this faith. We can't muster it on our own. And so we ask you humbly for it in Jesus' name. Amen.